0: Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty
1: Belmonte. And I'm Khaleesi Smith. Later in the show, Congressman McGovern weighs in on the situation in Gaza. And Mary Tamer for Democrats for Education Reform on why her organization thinks the controversial MCAS test should remain a graduation requirement in Massachusetts.
0: But first, more big news in the local music scene. October 12th, 2023. I can't believe you're making me do this. Dateline Northampton. Well, I was going to make them
1: do a dramatic reading of the <laughs> press release, but I just, you talked me out I of get even to, pitching I, it. I, I know. Take two.
0: It's okay. Signature Sound Presents has announced the sale of the Green River Festival to leading Western Massachusetts concert promoter DSP shows. DSP has signed a five-year lease to keep the beloved a genre-spanning festival at the Franklin County Fairgrounds. 2024 will mark
1: the festival's 37th year. And joining us is the founder of Signature Sounds, Jim Olson, and partner and talent buyer for DSP Shows, John Sanders. Congratulations to you both on this big concert news in in an era of lots of changing and moving pieces in our local concert scene.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: That's John, Thank you very much. and that's Jim. So, Jim. <laughs> We broadcast live for the first time ever, actually, even being involved with the festival for uh, 20-plus years with our previous uh, radio station where this festival was born. But tell folks who may not remember where the Green River Festival came from.
3: The Green River Festival started way back, 1986, somewhere in the Reagan administration, (laughs) (laughs) when... Fledging Greenfield-based radio station, WRSI, now known as 93.9 The River, decided to have a fifth birthday party. So I myself and a few other folks who worked at the station, we'd never done this sort of thing before. Uh, We put together a little party with NRBQ and a band that was unknown at the time called 10,000 Maniacs. And the late, great Ed Vodis and his fabulous heavyweights. And uh, we threw a little party on the lawn at Greenfield Community College.
1: And the rest is history. It then gets taken over by the Franklin County Chamber of Commerce, but still produced in large part by you, who had left WRSI and started your own record label, Signature Sounds. So you are you know, the spiritual, musical heart of this festival for the entirety of its history.
3: I've curated the lineup every single year since the beginning. So and-
1: now it will move on to DSP shows. John Sanders from DSP shows, uh, tell us why this is something that you, who have a history with the music scene in Northampton for a long time with the Iron Horse Entertainment Group, prior to working with DSP shows, it, why is it something that was that you and DSP wanted to take over?
2: Well, uh, Jim will tell you that you know I, I approached him you know a few years ago and said if you ever. Want to move on? Please let me know. You know, I'm I'm very interested. The Green roof Festival to me is the the ultimate live music event in Western Massachusetts, and and Jim has done an incredible job of of creating this community uh, of music lovers uh, who show up and support the music who who uh, who volunteer and the artists who play there. And it's just this incredible vibe. I've been to it. I've been going to it since two thousand one, I think was the first year that I went, uh, when my friend Aaron McKillen played yeah. uh, <laughs> on the festival. And um, you know, with my history in in Western Mass and, and promoting shows uh, when I was working for the Iron Horse Entertainment Group at the Iron Horse in Calvin and Pearl Street and Pines Theater in Mountain Park, and now with DSP shows where we do shows at the Academy of Music, the Pines Theater, uh, the Drake Great Gateway City Arts. Um, maybe someday soon, the Iron Horse again. Uh, it really fits well with uh, with with who we are and 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 what we do and 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 the music that we like and and the community that that we feel like we're a part of uh, in in Western Mass. And uh, I'm really really excited about. it. I haven't been this excited to work on something in in a very long time. Mm. We got to see
0: you floating around at the festival this year, backstage and and at some of the stages. How do you feel about? Where it was when you saw it the first time, and where it is now.
1: Meaning Greenfield Community College versus the Franklin County Fairgrounds. Well, we're not. Yeah, okay. You <laughs> know what you mean?
0: Is, is that what you mean? That's not what I mean. Oh, what did you mean? That? The festival in general. Oh, okay. Like things change over the years. When you see it the first time, it's different from when you see it like the twentieth time. So, yeah. how do you feel about where it is now and where you want to take it?
2: Uh, I think that the festival has grown tremendously. Jim can talk more about the kind of the milestones of like when it became two days and three days and and when camping was added. And and really it has grown organically as the demand for the festival has grown. Um, I think that the festival, first of all, I love the, the Franklin County Fairgrounds. I think that it's an incredible place to do this festival. You feel the history of the community coming together in this space as they have for... 150 or more years to, to celebrate and to, uh, you know, mostly agriculture. But now, you know, there's this community celebration of music that happens in the space. And it feels it just feels really good to have it there. Uh, I think that the, the layout is incredible at the fairgrounds. I think that we're not going to change a whole lot. Um, and we're just going to try and keep keep doing it the way that that has been done. Talk a little bit
1: about the move from where it started at Greenfield Community College to the fairgrounds, which I know a lot of old school Green River Festival fans will never get over, but <laughs> it's, that ship has essentially sailed, right? It has indeed sailed.
3: <laughs> it has indeed sailed. You know, we love doing it at the college. The whole thing with the hot air balloons is very magical and wonderful. But as as uh, festival promoters, as as the people who are uh, being entrusted to keep this thing safe and a, and a, a great uh, experience for everyone. It was a tough place to to actually produce a festival. Um, there is just no infrastructure out there. Um, so when 2020 came along, we had every intention in 2020 of continuing on at Greenfield Community College. Uh, and then uh, of course, we all know what happened, the pandemic hit and when we wanted to come back in 2021, we didn't want to take two years off between festivals. We, we felt like it could be done safely in 2021. The college wouldn't allow it. And so we moved the whole thing to the Franklin County Fairgrounds where we had just been doing the camping piece. And uh, we realized just doing it that first time in 2021 that it's just a better venue all the way around. Um, and so it, it, basically our, our decision was made for us. And uh you know, I just want to say some, something about an event like this is, is it's been going for a long time and it's going because it has evolved and changed over the years. And we got to a point with our Signature Sounds team where I feel like we took it as pretty much as far as we could take it. Mm-hmm. And we did the best we could with it. And, and now having a new team involved uh, and and wanting to take it to the next level is just great for everybody.
1: We're speaking with Jim Olson of Signature Sounds and John Sanders of DSP Shows. DSP Shows has just announced that they purchased the iconic Franklin County Summertime Festival, the Green River Festival, from Signature Sounds.
0: Is Signature Sounds stepping away from the event entirely or, like, consulting sort of? You both can talk about it and how that's going to work out.
3: (laughs) They need us. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) There's a a lot of institutional knowledge. This thing has a million moving parts. Mm -hmm. That uh, need to be worked through, and 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 um, you know, John and I are really having a good time actually working together on this transition, and you know, making sure that it's it's going to be great. Signature sounds. It will be a sponsor for years to come. I will be involved in my new role as festival grandpa. I love it. <laughs> oh
1: my god! That's the best. We're gonna call title you that ever. from now on, festival grandpa. <laughs>
3: Festival yeah. Grandpa Jim. That's and right. No matter when you. I it's, mean, It's a role you can really grow into over the years. You know?
0: you're, you're not going to be able to get away from it for anything else we bring you on to talk about. All right. Does that you make, just need to be aware of that now. Does that
1: make John Sanders our festival uncle? Yes. Yeah. I love that, too, kind of. Uh, John Sanders from DSP Shows. uh, The press release says that you've signed a five-year contract with the Franklin County Fairgrounds. That may leave people saying, well, then what happens? (laughs) Do we know yet? Is it too early to speculate?
2: Well, I think that 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 shows a commitment, actually. I don't believe that there was ever... any contract longer than one year to do the festival so I, th- I think that actually shows a, a commitment mm. that that we're planning on keeping this in in uh in Franklin County at the Franklin County Fairgrounds and and there is no intention or motive to to ever move it away from there yeah they're fantastic partners mm-hmm. I mean for, from the minute we moved there
3: they they couldn't be more accommodating more helpful and you know just really wanted to make it work and it, it certainly did
0: You've also, with this announcement, just announced the dates for next year's festival all as well. So do you want to...
2: Uh, yeah, we're the third weekend of June, uh, June 21, 22, and 23, and uh, we've put some early bird tickets on sale right now at Oh,
1: We're not allowed to say prices on public radio. Did you but know that? But it's always better to get it earlier yeah. rather than later. It, but we can say that it's going to be cheaper now than it would ever be. So yes. if you're one of those people that knows you're going to go no matter what, you'd almost be silly not to. But that all that being said, do you, anything we can disclose? A little titillating tidbit about what the future of this yeah, at least first that, incarnation of the DSP version of Green River has cuz
0: like this is happening but the lineup I know in the past has usually been like the big names for the lineup usually get announced in January so this is a little early
1: it's an earlier, early
2: bird. So, you know, the, the thing about the fairgrounds versus the, the community college is that the capacity is bigger. Um, you know, we're kind of maxed out at 5,000 people at, the, at, at GCC, and, and now we have the ability to, to, to do more people, which uh, in turn allows us to try and go after some, some bigger headliners. So that's definitely something that we're working on, and the hope is to have uh, some headliners announced uh, around Thanksgiving. Wow, oh, that's early for yeah, people.
1: That is early. And uh, maybe we'll have you back when that happens, too. That's pretty <laughs> exciting. Speaking with John Sanders from DSP Shows, who's now taken over the Green River Festival from Signature Sounds and Jim Olsen. I'm imagining Jim. Actually, I mean, full disclosure: Kalis and I are very ensconced in this festival, as is N E P M, as is our old radio station. Because we mater. feel kind
0: of the same way. There's something about this festival that is really kind of at the the pulse of this region.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, my kids have grown up going to this festival. They, um, it's a place where you could, as a parent, like let your six year old run wild and feel great about it. It, it is an important and huge and wonderful thing that you've created. I'm not gonna cry.
0: Are you? you were... <laughs> a little bit, maybe. He's
1: definitely
0: going to cry. I mean, I'm imagining,
1: and, and I knew at the festival this year that this was very likely, if not definite, to be to be your last one. And I took this beautiful picture of you and your wife, Carolyn, under the rainbow that came at the very end of the Green River Festival this year, and it seemed like this was fate. But I'm imagining that this is a, a bittersweet decision as somebody who has curated this iconic festival for so many years
3: you know to be honest with you i thought it was going to be a lot more bittersweet than it is mostly because it's just bitter i knew it you guys go at it it. no i'm just kidding
0: (laughs) no we're not having a green river thunderdome here
3: i'm not going anywhere monty yeah you know and and uh i i really look forward to the future of the festival Mm. you know we carried the ball as far as we could we're passing the ball along, but like you know, we're saying, I'm still going to be involved, and uh, I think much of the team who's been producing it over the past few years are, is going to continue on, and I think it's going to be a pretty seamless transition. I'm excited to get my sleepless week back, <laughs> 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 because it is a sleepless uh, week, the week
2: leading up to that festival, and... Uh, yeah. John ex-
0: Sanders, are you looking forward to your sleepless week that you have now inherited?
2: As the father of two young children, I know what sleepless weeks look like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Uncle Festival. <laughs> Well, I mean, before we let you go, this is another piece of a, a major shakeup in the local music scene with the sale of the Iron Horse, with whatever is exactly going on with the Calvin Theater that isn't entirely clear yet. I'm not, and,
0: I, and frankly, the outright loss of Pearl Street
1: and the Drake and Bombix and other uh, venues in the area that have been or are relatively new. Do you feel uh, hopeful? about where the music scene is headed with all of these changes? Let's start with you, John Sanders.
2: Uh, I'm super hopeful. I, I, I'm ever an optimist, and, you know, I haven't stopped promoting shows in Western Massachusetts for the last 23 years. And so, you know, when that transitioned to DSP, I, I didn't have... Uh, Certain venues uh, at my disposal, so I I made things work where I could, and and I think that you know the academy has become a really beloved place to see to see shows, and that really wasn't happening before 2015 when I started doing shows there. Um, we revived a, a Pines series, a, a series at Look Park and at the Pines, that is a place that. I love doing shows at, and I know that the community loves seeing shows at, um, and that has really come back in full force. So I'm, I'm super optimistic. I think that the Iron Horse coming back is great news for music lovers and for Northampton. I booked thousands of shows in that room, and uh, it's one of my favorite places to see a show, and I'm happy that I will get to see another show in that room.
1: Mm-hmm. Same question for you, Jim Olson from Signature Sounds. you feel hopeful about where the music scene is headed here?
3: I'm super hopeful. Um, I, it's amazing how we've come out of the pandemic with new venues and with all of these changes. And it, it's part of what makes me comfortable passing this along because I, I think we are about to hit another renaissance like we had in the late 80s, early 90s of, of the Valley music scene. You can just feel it coming and it's really exciting time.
0: So last, last question, like your, your unicorn get, the person that you'd love to see at the Green River Festival over the next five years? John Sanders?
2: I, I don't feel comfortable answering that question because I'm trying to get that person right now, right? <laughs> Jim Olson, who is your unicorn
1: get that you didn't quite catch? I think I know who Is
0: it, is. it still Billy Strings?
1: He Look, was already. Billy booked. Strings
3: was booked yeah. in 2020. He owes you a, part, a show. Part of the ill 2020 lineup, which was the best it lineup. Was the we best ever lineup. It was the best lineup. It was
0: such a good lineup. <laughs>
3: He still owes us. I have a signed contract, (laughs) Billy. Come on down. Uh, You know, I'm very fortunate that I got to book so many of my favorites. Um, You know, a lot of legendary performers who have passed on got to play the Green River Festival. I'm so glad that we took, took the extra step to bring in people like Alan Toussaint and Charles Bradley and, you know, legendary people who at the time people might have gone, who? But... You know, in retrospect, really add to to the rich history of the festival that they they played the stage. Sharon Jones and the Tap Kings, mm-hmm. oh, you know,
1: it's great. And I'm looking forward to the future. And I think personally, as somebody who's been involved with the festival for so long and has known John Sanders for so long, that this is a a hopeful moment for this iconic festival. Please let us still broadcast live. Yeah, and EPM's uh, usually a sponsor, so we would love to be still still be involved. <laughs> We're going to point blank ask you while you're live on the radio. Uh, John Sanders, who's now Uncle Festival of the Green River Festival, uh, just announced today that it is uh, Green River Festival has been sold by Signature Sounds and Jim Olson to DSP shows. Jim Olson. John Sanders, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, guys.
0: (laughs) Soon, we'll explore the future of the MCAS in the Commonwealth with Mary Tamer of Democrats for
1: Education Reform. But first, we'll check in with Congressman McGovern about Speaker of the House madness, school lunches, and more. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
3: The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's. Jim McGovern, a segment we like to call McGoverning with McGovern, and there's been a lot of drama in the House of Representatives, as there has been for a bunch of weeks, but the majority of people who wanted to ask questions of you, Congressman, want to talk about your take on what's going on between the state of Israel and Hamas. Got an email from Josh Jacobson saying, Representative McGovern, I'm not one of your constituents. I'm originally from Westfield, though I now live in Agawam, and I am a worker, student, and educator. Will you second or at least recognize Rashida Tlaib's statement regarding the recent escalation in hostilities in this conflict in Congress? And for background, if you're not following this, Rashida Tlaib is the only Palestinian in Congress, as far as I know. Tlaib suggested withholding U.S. support to fund Israel's, quote, apartheid government, a commitment that infuriated some of her fellow lawmakers who found it offensive as the death toll there continues to rise. She also called the attack part of a resistance effort. The emailer Josh Jacobson goes on to say her statement for a member of that body is incredibly empathetic, humanistic, and respectful despite the reactionary response it received. As a citizen of the Commonwealth, I hope, no expect, that you will defend your colleague against reactionaries within and without our government. What's your take first on well, your colleague's statements?
4: Well I I'm a rhetoric statement, but Rashid is my friend and um, and I defend everybody's right to say what they believe. She's a thoughtful member of, of the House of Representatives, um, and um, I share her her view that uh, the Palestinians deserve a homeland and that we have we care about Palestinian human rights. So I, I, that I, you know, we we, uh, we, we agree on. I, I think where we disagree um, at this moment is is in the sense that I do not believe that Hamas represents the Palestinian people, and I don't believe that Hamas's goal and their barbaric attack on, on Israel. I mean, it, it is ISIS-like, uh, the attack. I mean, I, I've sat through a number of briefs, a number of videos and pictures about what has gone on, and, and it, is, it is reminiscent of the kinds of attacks that ISIS launched, killing babies and, and, and elderly people, and just, I mean, the, brut- the brutality of the killing of itself. This was a de- targeted attack on Israel. Hamas's goal is not about uplifting the Palestinian people. Hamas's goal... And it's in its charter, and this is just a fact: is the destruction of the Jewish state, is the destruction of Israel. That is what drives Hamas. So, you know, I think the pathway forward to help better the lives of Palestinians is going to be by getting Hamas out of the picture here. Hamas is not lobbying the world community for Palestinian rights; they're interested in the destruction of Israel. And so, I think that's where I stand. And I look at I've been very critical. Benjamin Netanyahu and, and his government and their attempts not only at uh, trying to ignore the Palestinian question, but also on their attempt to try to, you know, overturn democracy within Israel. But but we, we, we can't blur everything together. And I really believe that, again, that Hamas is a, a goal here is is one thing, and that is to destroy Israel. And I, again, I think the whole world is horrified by what happened. And let us hope we can, we get beyond this that we can get to a point where the world can get serious about trying to figure out um, how we can create an independent uh, Palestinian state where the Palestinians have a future uh, and don't have to live under the repression of Hamas.
1: Your colleague in the Senate, Senator Ed Markey, also a Democrat, was on Boston Common earlier this week denouncing what Hamas has done as a heinous attack. But then he's called for a de-escalation of the current violence. The Biden administration has sent one of our largest warships to assist in the Israeli effort to squash Hamas. There is likely to be a ground invasion very soon. People from, who are within Gaza are, are scrambling to try to find food and supplies before this ground invasion begins. When, when Ed Markey called for a de-escalation, a chorus of boos started to, to ring out in the middle of uh, his speech. Is the Biden administration's support of what Israel is doing right now something that is dividing democrats
4: no i mean i I think the issue now is um whether israel has a right to defend itself i mean that's the question and they do if we were attacked we have the right to defend ourselves as well the issue is how you proceed in that goal look I, i think everybody would like to see an end to hostilities everywhere right i mean but but how do you how do you end the hostilities? Um, and keep in, in place an apparatus that is aimed at tr- your total destruction. I mean, that's the, the issue.
1: But the, and, and the again, rhetoric I'm, coming out of Netanyahu's mouth that is also total destruction at this point, and the U.S. is assisting yeah. in, in that total destruction. And the U.S. is also cautioning Net,
4: Netanyahu about, uh, you know, remi- reminded him about there are, there are rules of war. There are things like international human rights standards, and that, a, uh, that attention needs to be given to doing everything you can to protect civilians i 've urged the israeli government to to stop the blockade of food and water into into Gaza because I, I, the majority of people who live in Gaza are children to me that is that is something that we, that we should we, we should try to get them to reverse immediately but the deal is is that I, I think yet we have to we have to separate the israeli palestinian conflict from what is happening right now in the sense that Hamas 's attack on israel is not about the Palestinians or about a homeland or about even the the, the horrific conditions in Gaza. The, here's the other thing. The leaders of Hamas who are directing this horrific attack against Israel, they're, they're in other countries right now, in five-star hotels, doing press conferences and making themselves available on the internet to, to try to stir more and more hostility around the world. So look, I, I have a, a, a long, commitment to protecting and upholding the rights of, of, of the Palestinians I will continue to do that but I I, I can't I, I have a difficult time trying to say well you know therefore this attack is understandable this is not about the Palestinians read uh, the history of Hamas read their charter they, they're exploiting the Palestinian people and yes we need to continue to press Israel to respect the human rights of the Palestinian people because if they don't quite frankly and is there's evidence of excesses in which palestinian civilians are deliberately targeted that will undercut the support for israel internationally there's the right thing to do morally is
1: also the right thing to do politically speaking with us congressman jim mcgovern our regular thursday chat McGoverning with mcgovern this is a story that's only been breaking today but comes from your district and has to do in no small part to anti-imperialism anti-colonialism which plays into the uh, israeli-gaza conflict right now but earlier this morning demilitarized western mass created a blockade on prince street in front of l3 harris which is the local subsidiary of the ninth largest weapons manufacturer in the world i think many people who live in western mass don't realize that there is this major weapons manufacturer in northampton of all places. There are risking arrest. Uh, one of our frequent questioners and joiners on the March for the Food Bank, Pocky Wheland, is amongst the folks who are there risking arrest right now to try to protest what's going on, particularly in this region, but with their role in violence abroad in places across the globe. What's your uh, take on, on the fact that there is a weapons manufacturer of this scale in your district and uh, the folks that are now creating this blockade and risking arrest?
4: Well, I, I appreciate nonviolent uh, protests and uh, I've been involved in many protests myself over the years, which have resulted in my arrest. So I, I certainly respect people's right to do that. I'm somebody who is a, who routinely votes against the military budget because I think it is extravagant and out of control. And I'm someone who's also tried to restrain where the United States sends weapons around the world. I mean, we, we send weapons... Not just to allies but we send weapons to thugs uh around the world and those weapons are, are in turn used um to invade other countries or to harm civilians and so um you know i will i will watch this protest intently um i didn't know it was happening. you just informed me about it um, and i, I love Paki wieland and so i know if she's involved in this that this is something that um is important for all of us to pay attention to
1: Pocky Wheeland for those who don't know is part of every social justice organization that exists out there code pink um, I think she may be old enough to be one of the raging grannies at this point but it's you know she's uh fallen in the footsteps of, of many of the social justice activists like Francis crow from from this area yeah. Pocky's one of my heroes and I in fact I
4: was just on a, a phone call uh, a zoom call with her the other day uh, talking about uh, how we overturn uh, US economic sanctions in, uh, against Venezuela, which is resulting in incredible hardship for the Venezuelan people and is resulting in hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans leaving the country, try to seek a better life uh, and get coming to the United States as well. But uh, she, on every good cause, Paki is there.
1: So um, I will follow this intently. We might need to bail her out. I, I, you got to bail me out of Washington first. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, right. Right here. <laughs> Speaking of Washington, back to the boring stuff. What is going on in the House of Representatives? It looks like Steve Scalise has risen uh, to the top of the charts, I guess, as the potential new Speaker of the House, your colleague in Massachusetts from the 5th Congressional District, Catherine Clark, the minority whip in the House, wrote an article or a piece for the Boston Globe saying that now is the time to figure out how to work together with the Democrats, given uh, the fact that we've talked about before that the White House is controlled by Democrats. The Senate is controlled by Democrats. Tell us what we need to know about Steve Scalise as he is the likely next speaker. Well,
4: he's another right-wing Republican, uh, but he's having trouble getting to the 217 votes he needs to become speaker. Uh, There's a civil war going on within the Republican Party. And and I think really the the most logical path forward is a bipartisan path. But so far, none of the Republicans who are running for speaker are are interested in that. And um, again, you know, whoever becomes the next speaker, uh, will be in the same situation that Kevin McCarthy is in. Uh, the Republicans, thanks to Kevin McCarthy acquiesced to the hardline right wingers and agreed to a rule that any one person can move to vacate the speaker's chair. So that's not and, going away. Uh, that's that's Steve going away. Scalise
1: could be no. speaker for 15 right. minutes and do something that the hard right Republicans don't want. They'll call for a vote for <laughs> his removal.
4: Right. Yeah. And, and they've all pledged, um, to not change that rule and the right wing has said we won't vote for anybody who changes that rule and they said they won't vote for anybody who works with democrats so that's kind of where we are right now uh the house right of representatives is inoperable and we are fast approaching another deadline in which the government will run out of money we won't be able to even bring anything to the house floor for debate or vote because the acting speaker pro tem has no power the only power he has is to be able to oversee the election of the next speaker. So we can't even bring anything to the floor. If there was a natural disaster that hit the United States this morning, Congress would not be able to act to vote to appropriate money to respond to it in the afternoon. We cannot do a thing. So this is unprecedented. My hope is they can get their act together, but the easiest thing for them to do, the smartest thing for them to do, is to work with us on a bipartisan path forward. Uh, And I hope they'll do that. But if not, we're going to see this craziness continue.
1: Does it seem likely, given your knowledge of Steve Scalise over the years, that he will be more willing to work than, say, Kevin McCarthy was? Or is he still going to be as under the thumb of the uh, the Freedom Caucus, as they call themselves? I think
4: whoever is the speaker will be under the thumb of the Freedom
1: Caucus unless they change that rule.
4: And look, Steve Scalise, you can Google this, he's not a moderate by any means. I mean, he he referred to himself as David Duke without the baggage um, a few years back. So that's kind of where he's coming from. So this is not like this moderate Republican. This is not like a, a Charlie Baker type of personality. Having said that, he is a much more pleasant person just in conversation than Jim Jordan is and then Kevin McCarthy is for that matter. But do I expect anything different? No. As long as this rule stays in place, the hardline right wing will call the shots. And if he doesn't jump when they tell him to jump, they will move to vacate the chair and we'll be in this situation uh, once again.
1: This week is National School Lunch Week, and I know – Congressman McGovern, you've been an anti-hunger advocate for such a long time, and we in Massachusetts have made free lunches available to all students, but you introduced a bill, the Healthy Meals Help Kids Learn Act, that would give more funding and opportunity to kids in school to eat fresh local ingredients in their breakfasts and lunches. Any possibility this National School Lunch Week that uh, something like that will get any attention, or is Congress in such disarray that no one's ever even going to think about this bill again?
4: Well, we're going to try to make it so that people have to pay attention to it. Look, it is wonderful that Massachusetts joined a number of other states, and we now offer you know, free meals to all of our students in, in a school setting. That's an important step forward, and I, I'm grateful to the state legislature for doing this and the governor for signing it uh, into law. But it is not just about making sure kids have a meal. It's what kind of meal uh, they get. And again, we want more and more fresh produce. We want healthier meals. In our schools, um, and we want, quite frankly, to give our kids the very, very best. And that's what the goal of this is. And, you know, we have a huge number of incredible farms all throughout the Commonwealth. I mean, I would, I would like to work more with them to make sure what they produce and what they grow on their farms gets into our schools, uh, and our kids can enjoy good, locally produced, wonderful food. And that's, that's what this bill is about. We're going to keep fighting it until we, uh, get it over the finish line.
1: Meanwhile, while Congress is in disarray, and that may take some time to get it over the finish line. There's stuff you can do locally. The March for the Food Bank signups are now up at the Food Bank's website, foodbankwma.org. The March will go from Springfield to Greenfield over two days, November 20th and 21st. I'll be there pushing an empty shopping cart alongside Andrew Morehouse, who's the executive director of the Food Bank, and U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who's gone with us now, I don't know, nine, ten of these... Um- of the fourteen marches that we've done, something along those lines. I've I've lost count. <laughs> uh, so, but 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 again, I hope
4: everybody will join us. It's a it, it's not only for a good cause. Um, it's a lot of fun, and and there are and really, you know, especially with all the turmoil that's going on in the world, sometimes it's just good to be with good people who want to do good things, and that's the way I look at this at this march. Uh, there's a lot of good people in our community uh, who want to who want to help those who uh, quite frankly uh, struggle and that's what this is about.
1: The theme this year is power of community, and it seems like uh, it's a great way to gather together when you feel helpless, either in Congress or with global politics, to feel like you're actually participating in something to make the place where you live maybe just a tiny bit better. So I always appreciate that you come along on that, Congressman, and I'm getting my steps in already to uh, get ready for this 43 mile. You don't have to do, uh, listeners don't have to do the whole 43 miles. Neither does the Congressman, by the way, and his wife would love yeah, it I- if he didn't, I know, <laughs> but but, uh,
4: I just bought some new hokers, so oh, oh,
1: those are good. Yeah, those are good sneakers. The, yeah. yeah, I'm uh, yeah. the the hey. theme this year for for my dress up is it's a Barbie themed celebration of drag. Uh, so I'm gonna be Ken yeah. one day, and I'm gonna be Barbie the next. Yeah, I, I can hardly wait. <laughs> so get some you, pink, but, get uh, some
4: pink, and wear it. It'll be uh, fun. I'll see where I can find. It. But uh, hey, one last thing before I go, if um, if anybody um, who's listening has. Uh, family or friends or loved ones, either in Israel or in Gaza, you know, and are concerned about, you know, their whereabouts or uh, or, or, if they, or if they know people that are trying to get to the United States from either place, uh, please call my office. And um, we're happy to, to try to work uh, to make sure that people get answers. And uh, and and again, as this unfolds, um, I'm very, very open and interested in hearing what, what people have to say. And I, I want to hear what, what's on people's minds. So I hope people will stay in touch with me.
1: U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts taking your questions weekly here and has his office open if you have loved ones that are in the Holy Land right now that you're worried about. You can send your questions to him for this show at thefab413 at nepm.org. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Up next...
0: Should the MCAS remain a graduation requirement for the Commonwealth? We'll explore the flip side of a question that may end up on the ballot for next year with Mary Tamer of Democrats for Education Reform.
1: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
0: Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We welcome Mary Tamer, who is the Massachusetts Director of Democrats for Education Reform. She is a longtime education advocate and Democratic ar- activist who is a product of the Boston Public Schools, a former Boston Public Schools parent, a former member of the Boston School Committee, and a past president of the League of Women
1: Voters of Boston. And we're talking about MCAS and the Thrive Act, which is aiming to be on the ballot a year from this November. Mary Tamer wrote in a recent piece for the Boston Globe, quote, the current." state of education should affirm that i <laughs> don't mess around with my script i block... <laughs> you're blocking my script bart <laughs> <laughs> Quote, the current state of education should affirm that a common assessment measuring academic performance is an indispensable tool to ensure education equity and apply consistent standards. Instead, the very notion of statewide standards is currently under attack in the form of proposed legislation, the so-called Thrive Act, and a ballot question, both sponsored by the Massachusetts Teachers Association, seeking to weaken the state's long-standing accountability system.
0: She continues, the ballot question would not only eliminate 10th grade MCAS as a high school graduation requirement, but it would also require individual districts more than 300 in all to set their own graduation standards as long as they do not include a standardized test, rendering a diploma from Lexington to mean something quite different than one from
1: Lemonster or Lawrence. Mary Tamer joins us. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Listeners may remember in August we had the president of the Mass Teachers Association, Max Page, who is an fabulous 413 resident in Amherst, talking about the Thrive Act and why his organization is backing it. Tell us why your organization, the Democrats for Education Reform, thinks that the MCAS should stay the way that it is.
5: Yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because we, you know, are a state that serves just shy of a million students. So we have about, I think, 913,000 students in our schools across the state. Um, and one of the things um, that we know is that Massachusetts has been a leader, um, specifically since the 1993 education reform law came into being. Um, and basically not only paved the way for chapter 70, which is the f- a very complicated formula that we use to fund our schools, but also a new system of standards and accountability. And so um, we have seen tremendous gains um, in student achievement, in high school graduation rates since um, these new, you know, measures or not when they were new at the time went into effect, um, and it's it's interesting. We recently had a call with um, we were doing our organization along with a statewide coalition of groups is looking at. Mass Core standards here in Massachusetts, which are a recommended set of standards from the state, not required. Um, But we've been talking to other states about what they're doing. And when we mentioned the Thrive Act and some of the activity around eliminating MCAS as a 10th grade graduation requirement, um, these folks in Indiana were like, oh my gosh, why would Massachusetts change anything? You all are the gold standard. We all look to you for what you're doing um, in terms of your education system and your standard setting. so, I think that's a really good, you know, measure when you talk to folks in other states and what they're wrestling with in terms of ensuring that a diploma means something, but also that students are getting exactly what they need, so they're prepared for that next step, whether that step is college or career.
1: We got an email from a man in Greenfield who's a retired educator named Paul Giblon, who uh, wanted to put his take out there, and sure. he said that the that he believes that corporations are are behind this movement. That the corporations who create and grade these exams, be, the movement being MCAS itself, not mm-hmm. the Thrive Act, uh, that uh, who create these exams and whose profits have increased 5,000 percent since standardized testing has begun and don't want them to disappear. A lot of the critique um, has to do uh, with your organization has to do with funding. So talk about we know the Mass Teachers Association is funded by teachers and union dues. Tell us about what your Democrats for Education Reform uh, is, how that organization is funded. <laughs> So we are funded by individuals and donors, whether
5: it's foundation donors from across The country, from the state. Um, You know, we're funded by the same folks who fund lots of different education groups. We have individuals who support the work that they do. I think really what's most important for me to mention is what drives me to do this Mm -hmm. work. And so I am, in addition to being, my kids did go through the Boston Public Schools, um, I'm also a Boston Public School graduate, you know, as are my parents. You know, my mom was an English learner. I come from a Middle Eastern family, and my mom was actually denied admission to the Boston Public Schools because she didn't speak enough English. Mm -hmm. And at the time we didn't have laws to protect English learners. My older sister was a high school dropout because while I was fortunate to have teachers who supported me, and I was a low-income kid in the Boston public schools, um, my sister fell through the cracks of a system that, at times, is very broken. And so my sister missed almost a month of school, and no one ever called to say, your daughter's not coming to school every day, whereas I was in a school that if I missed even two hours of school, my parents got a phone call. And so when it comes to standards and accountability, what drives me to this work is that knowing 40 years after my own sister's experience that we see too many children who are falling through the cracks. So we can focus on funding organizations. I think what's most important is to focus on the children and people like me who go to work every day to make sure that every child in the state of Massachusetts gets what they need to be successful. And
1: I think we can all agree that the safety and education of our children is important. But if big corporate interests like have been levied against your organization, say, the Walton family behind Walmart or the Rupert Murdoch, if they are funding this organization, And it is not coming from, say, teachers. Why are they vested in this as a movement? Why are they vested in other things that your organization has stood for, like charter schools, which in some ways take public funding Out of the hands of a democratically elected school committee and put it into what can be conceived as private interests
5: well so here in the state of Massachusetts 74 percent of the families for example who support charter schools and send their children to charter schools are families of color I do not believe that anyone should tell families of color where they can or cannot send their children to school in Boston it's 92 percent families of color who send their children to charter schools now I know Uh, I have many wonderful friends who are teachers. You know, I know teachers who send their children to private schools. If you're a poor mom living in Roxbury or Mattapan, often your only choice, other than a district school that might be not serving children as well as it could, is to send them to a charter school. And I believe that public school choice is a very important thing for all families to have,
0: regardless of their income. So... um not to let's go back to the the thing with your sister. Is there proof that MCAS makes up the difference in leveling this playing field for those kids who fall through the through the cracks? Like, does the MCAS actually make up that space? It's it's supposed to. And so,
5: if we use MCAS as it is intended, which is as a diagnostic tool of telling us where children are and where they are not. We are fortunate to live in the state of Massachusetts where we have appropriated millions and millions of dollars through the Student Opportunity Act specifically to go to districts where children are identified as high needs, which means you have a higher proportion of students with disabilities, English learners, low income students, that money is specifically targeted to go to those districts to help those students get the support that they need. Because one of the things we know is that talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. And so the question we should be asking is what are we doing to make sure that all children are successful in getting the support they need, whether it's mental health support, whether it's academic tutoring, whether it's a longer school day or a longer school year. Here in Springfield, you all have used your ESSER funds to actually offer full day programming. And it's not just academic, but enrichment programming for students In the for the last two summers. Brookline has done the same. All districts should be doing that because we know that these last three years of interrupted learning have taken a significant toll on our kids both academically and mentally and so my question is at a time when we as a state came into two and a half billion dollars in ESSER and ARP funding from the federal government specifically earmarked for our schools to recover we have 1.2 billion of that money left how are we spending that money and how are we putting it to the kids that need it the most we have more money in our districts right now than we frankly know what to do with and the question is, what have we done differently? And in my estimation, we haven't done eno- enough differently. We're doing the same old, same old, and it's not serving our students.
1: We're speaking with Mary Tamer from Democrats for Education Reform about their organizations hope that the MCAS does not change despite the fact that the Thrive Act may end up on the ballot a year from this November. We'll be back with more questions with Mary Tamer in just a little bit. we are listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. <laughs> that's This Is Not A Test by Bikini Kill, and I'm Monty <laughs> Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we're speaking with Mary Tamer from the Democrats for Education Reform about a test called MCAS and whether it should stay the way that it is or whether in the Thrive Act, potentially, a year from November, it would be changed to no longer a high-stakes graduation requirement.
0: Right. And that's the thing that I wanted to, to bring up next because we talked to Max Page again about this in... President Al- of the Mass
1: Teachers Association. Right.
0: Who at the time said the thing that basically you just said in our last segment, that the MCAS should be used as diagnostic tool. But we haven't really gotten to why it should be the, the graduation requirement mm-hmm. and why that, that separation is important.
5: Absolutely, no, it's a great question, Calise. So, So what I would say is the test itself is supposed to be telling us whether the standards that are being taught to students throughout the year are resonating. Like, are those standards, like, you know, actually, um, you know, is it something that they're learning? Like, we have a list of standards that, you know, students' academic standards that we want students to learn in the different subject areas. And so are those lessons resonating or not? One of the things that we've heard and seen, and this came up, there was a hearing at the Statehouse last week on the Thrive Act. We had a mom testify who said her son, for example, was getting all A's and B's at his lovely suburban Boston school it wasn't until she saw his MCAS scores that she saw there was a significant disconnect between her son getting all A's and B's and the fact that his MCAS scores were showing that he couldn't read. Um, And in fact, he had dyslexia. So how is it possible that this child was getting all A's and B's despite the fact that he couldn't read? And we see this in our high schools as well. We have ninth graders who are two to four grade levels behind. And so MCAS tells us what grades don't, and that's why it is one measure. It tells us something. It doesn't tell us everything, but it does tell us something important, and we believe asking students to meet a 10th grade standard before the 12th grade, even if they still have to take the test in the 12th grade, they're still being asked to meet a 10th grade standard, And that is a minimal requirement um, for any child who wants to go into college or career.
1: But what if the reverse is true? What if you're somebody who is very, very, very smart Mm -hmm. and gets all A's and B's maybe because your teacher is assessing you constantly, but you don't have a – you're not great with tests. And then you don't pass this test. Shouldn't you be able to graduate? Shouldn't your teachers and your school district be the ones that say – yeah, you're you're a smart kid. You definitely deserve to graduate, even though you can't fill out this test.
5: So, so the reality is, there is there's an, a there's a process where uh, families and students can appeal. So, if for whatever reason there is a student um, who cannot pass the test, there is there's some you know there's something called the EPP process. But there is there are avenues for students to appeal, for families to appeal. But what's really important to know is that we're talking about less than 1% of the kids who are graduating. We're talking about 700 students a year. And it's it's our opinion that those 700 students per year that are not graduating, I would love to know what supports were they given after they didn't pass in 10th grade and then they subsequently didn't pass again in the 11th and 12th grade. What are we doing to make sure that all of our children are successful? And that is really the question here.
1: Couldn't all the, in the wind, one minute we have left, couldn't all the assessments be made without the graduation requirement? So couldn't all of the same data be there but not the graduation requirement?
5: So the problem I would say to that, Monty, is the problem is here in Massachusetts, we have no set graduation requirements. And so mass Course standards are a recommendation and not a requirement. So again, going back to my op-ed, I don't believe that we want diplomas to mean 300 different things in Massachusetts. I don't think having individual districts set expectations, some of which might be high, some of which might be incredibly low, is the way to go for our students. I think all of our students in Massachusetts deserve the best that we can give them, and MCAS is part of that.
1: Mary Tamer from the Democrats for Education Reform. If you missed the conversation with Max Page earlier this summer, you can hear it again this Saturday at 11 o'clock. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a conversation we can have over the course of the next year, it looks like. we
0: will continue to have over the next year. (laughs) It certainly (laughs)
1: seems like we will. Thank you. Did you know? That the national average of local food used by higher ed dining systems is only 3%.
0: But there's a local college that's grown its program to use 10 times that amount for its dining
1: program. Tomorrow on the show, we'll speak with Andy Cox and Herman Alvarado of Smith College about the strengths and challenges of getting students to eat local.
0: And the fellows of
1: NEPM's Media
0: Lab program worked all summer on the series, Books for Young People, and we'll share that series with
1: you. Plus, we'll go to the wine Thunderdome at Table and & Vine and taste two Chianti Classicos. With
0: a special guest.
1: <laughs> special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Elon Jewell, the Jay Giles Band, Flaming Lips, Daniel Hales, and the Frost Heaves, Bikini Kill, and She and Him. Our director is Tony Happy Half Century Done. Our engineers are Betsy Distance Bay Lankdo, Phil Mr. Meeples Bishop, Kara the Long Arm of the Show Foster, Bart the penultimate board op standing, Rankin and punk rude boy Sharp, Sharp Cheddar DuBay. I'm Monty Belmonti. And I'm Cleese Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on
0: the Fabulous 413.